Leading into Memorial Day weekend this year, the box office hit Top Gun Maverick was released, and three weeks later, it's still at the top of all charts. I'm sure some of it has to do with the never-aging Tom Cruise, but what's really behind the flocking audiences is America's fascination with her flyboys hitting mock speeds in the air and walking assuredly on the ground. It's a fantastic metaphor for America's swagger and might. In this episode of Lessons from the Front, I get to sit down with a real Top Gun pilot, Jeff Fellows, and he didn't disappoint. Although I think you'll be captivated by the humility of this great patriot. He almost acts surprised by his accomplishments, and I love the way he acknowledges his wife's hand in his career success. From the intensity of landing his F-18 Hornet on an aircraft carrier at night, to engaging the enemy, we covered a lot of ground that I'll promise you is worth a listen in order to learn the truth about being a real Top Gun pilot. From Carry the Load, these are Lessons from the Front. Stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. Jeff, I, I appreciate you, you know, being here. And uh, it was not that long ago, honestly, that we met, although we, you know, we're kind of born and raised in the same community. Uh, I mean, you're, you're from Dallas, right? I am. I'm from uh, originally from Dallas. I grew up in, in Plano. Uh, once I got to high school, went to Jesuit and, but yeah, I consider this home. And like you said, we met, I think we were talking at, um, in ha at Halloween yeah. when we got introduced and we, I think talked for close to 45 minutes and, uh, the genesis of getting together today. So, yeah. Yeah. And so when I, when I met you, everybody's, uh, um, you know, a couple of the guys that, that we know are like, you know, Hey, you got to meet uh, this guy, Jeff, you know, he was a top gun pilot <laughs> and it's like your entire career gets condensed into being a top gun pilot. That's right. You know, and it's, it, you know, I'm kind of the same way. I know that that's what people use. Uh, you know, not this guy, Todd, who, you know, I'd like to think he's a good dad and a, and a great husband and all that good stuff, but he's a Marine, you know, and that's, that's, you know, that's how we're identified. So does that ever get old for you that you're, you know, Jeff, the top gun pilot? Um, it, it doesn't. And that doesn't come from a spot of like, it's not, it's something I worked really hard to, to earn. And, and I acknowledge, and I remember when I was young watching Top Gun, like that movie colored, you know, what I thought of aviation, fighter aviation. And, and I, as a kid was not a big aviation enthusiast. I was a, I was enamored with sports and wanting to be the next Troy Aikman. But as a kid watching that movie with my brother over and over, it just, be, it becomes the, and it may be the most marketable name in combat aviation. If, if anybody, regardless of service says Top Gun, you automatically know what that is. So when guys hear that, I think that's something really easy to latch onto and, and attach an identity and attach a thought of what you think it might have been like. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so it doesn't get old. Um, it's, it actually is a really big part of my military career that colored a lot of the lens at which I flew later in my career. And, you know, as a leader and the way you saw, uh, come to complex problem solving, so, I mean, that is a, it was a cornerstone in, in my career that I'm very proud of and still stay connected to the Top Gun Schoolhouse and my friends from there and other instructors. So it's a, uh, it is a, it, it, it's a really big part of who I am and who my family is. And so we've got a really, a lot of really great memories there. So, uh, so no, I don't get, I, I don't get tired of it. How old were you when, when that movie came out? Oh my God, that would have been 1986. So I was probably seven. Okay. Yeah. Seven years old. And that, so that was the old. first time which I'm doing the math here. I was a little bit older than you. I'm realizing, but, uh, the, 
the whole idea of Top Gun, you said that was never even flying was never really on your radar. Mm-hmm. You wanted to be an athlete. You mm-hmm. wanted to be the next Troy Aikman. So you go to the academy, uh, the Naval Academy, you know, uh, I guess the affectionate name is boat school. That's right. Ring knocker, you know, all those fun things. And then did you get thrown into it? Did you fall into being a pilot? Uh, is that, was that your first choice? It was my first choice, but it's I mean, a, obviously your first choice should have been Marine Corps. <laughs> Well, this is going to be a good story. Okay. Tom. All right. Well, here we go. So for uh, for you guys in the room doing trying to do the math, I, I graduated from the Naval Academy in 2002. Okay. And I just came off of active duty, which is actually only 19 years of active duty service. But I went to prep school, the Naval okay. Academy prep school, Naps. which counts as a as a year of service. So mm-hmm. that was my that's where I got my extra time to get okay. to 20. And while I was at the Naval Academy prep school. Most of the students that are there are either recruited athletes or prior enlisted sailors and Marines who had earned the right or earned the, earned the opportunity to go through a commissioning source and become an officer of Navy Marine Corps. And so I was there straight out of high school, had no idea what I was doing. And also thrown in with you are 21, 22 year old corporal sergeants from the Marine Corps and you know, second class petty officers, third class petty officers from the Navy. And those were the guys that really ran the school. They mm-hmm. were natural peer leaders by age, natural peer leaders by, they had the experience, they knew right. what the military was like. And I gravitated to the Marines. It's amazing how much experience, how much life experience, how much military experience you can get in two or three years. Oh my God. It was like, I'm learning how to do my own yeah. laundry, you know. Um, which is not an indictment on my parents in any way, but, and these guys are like full, they're full grown men. They're adults. Like they know right. how to balance a checkbook. They know how to study in school. They have their priorities straight. And so I naturally gravitated to, uh, to a couple of Marines. Um, I'll mention their names. One was Sergeant Loomis and, uh, most corporal Ben Wagner, who I went to the Naval Academy with later. And I thought those guys hung the moon, you know, they had, they had their stuff together. And as I was at the academy, that was my first inclination. I was like, okay, well, I think I'd like to be, you know, a Marine officer, an infantry officer. And during your course at the academy, you get to get exposure to ground, what it's like to be right. a Marine officer. Yeah. And I went there and did that. You also get exposed to submarine warfare, surface warfare, and aviation. And after getting exposed to all of those, uh, aviation was the one that was going to be the best fit for my personality, what I thought I'd like to do for, for service. So, um, unfortunately, like it, I, I, it was, it's kind of heartbreaking. It's like, ah, I think I really want to be a Marine. But then when I got out there, it was like, this, this is, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And luckily I'm glad I made that decision then and not later. Um, and ended up in the right, right service field for me. But that was my first love. What I thought I was like, man, being a Marine would be, would be awesome. Cause there's, there's something special about, young Marines and how emphatic they love being Marines. And that, that was really drawn to that. So you go through one year of naps, mm-hmm. you go through four years of the Academy, two years of general flight school to get winged. Right. Then you have to go through your specific That's right. aircraft training. That's and how right. long is that? That for me was 10 months. So you could probably, if you're rounding up, roll all that up. And okay, I'm a grunt. Do the math yeah. for me here. Let's see. That's three years. five years of college, three yeah. years. Okay, got it. So, but we, once I graduated from the Naval Academy, three, about three years later, I was in my first fleet squadron. 
flying a tactical gray fighter jet for the Navy. Man, that's a lot of school. And, and they don't even call you doctor. No, they don't. And it's... Uh, they call you bangs. That's, that's right. And the, uh, <laughs> and, and the guys, I think, would mostly attest to... I had a really wrong impression of what I thought flight school was going to be. And as we were talking about why aviation, one of the reasons why that, that, that community came off to me is like, these guys are pretty chill. seems like these guys are in Pensacola. They play golf every once in a while and they go flying like that. That seems like an okay life as a young 20 something. They go play volleyball and drive around their, their motorcycles. All all those things are a hundred percent true. Um, but I, that's what I was like, this is, you know, that's not a bad way to be a, a young ensign or lieutenant junior grade as a junior officer. That's great. And then, and my wife, my wife were sitting here, she would be nodding violently that like, it was hard. It was really hard work. So that three years to get from graduating at the Naval Academy to my first fleet squadron, you talk about some ups and downs. Like some days I felt like I had the world by the tail and honey, we're going to do this. And then other days I, I specifically remember telling my wife, Courtney, I was like, I'm working as hard as I can. I don't know if they're going to ask me to leave or stay, but I'm, I'm just going to keep showing up and, until they tell me not to. You know, there were some, some really, there were some good, one, good days and some bad days in there. So a lot of hard work. A lot of people, I think what they, um, what they associate with, you know, just flying is Top Gun and they make the assumption that you're going to, but that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. So, you know, walk us through that. How did you end up at Top Gun and be a little less humble when it comes to the the qualifications and requirements to get there? That's a good put and a good question. The first thing that came to my mind is like my first commanding officer in VFA 22, the Fighting Redcocks at the time was Commander Nick Mongillo, call sign Mongo. And he has since now, Captain we, Mongillo, retired. We had a, we had a Mongo. Oh, yeah, uh, I'm um, sure. <laughs> the, the call sign speaks for itself. He's uh, exactly that he is a force of nature and was – and still a mentor of mine. I still keep in touch with them. We get together at least once a month or so, if not more often. And, and he was a Top Gun instructor. Okay. So not only was he my first commanding officer, he was wearing this patch on his shoulder, a Top Gun patch, that uh, as a young aviator, that I was like, I, I see guys wearing these patches, and these are the guys that seem to be the tactical leaders. These are the guys that seem to have their knife in the teeth. These are the guys that are really enthusiastic and committed to doing the mission and flying these airplanes and employing mm-hmm. them the right way or in the way that I thought this is this, that's what I want to be like. Mm-hmm. And so that was him. And, and he was, he was an easy guy to work for and an easy guy to fly with because he had extremely high standards. They weren't unachievable. They were fair, but you had to prepare really hard and your execution had to be very precise and had to be very good to satisfy like his bar for, hey, how are you doing as an aviator? Right. And granted, being a brand new aviator, he, he didn't expect me to be the best, but he expected us to have, you know, a steep learning curve to listen when you're taught, apply what you've been taught on the next flight so you don't keep making the same mistake twice. And, uh, and I gravitated to that. I gravitated towards that. And so I was like, hey, I want to, uh, that's the kind of guy that I want to be when I grow up as an aviator. And, and there were other examples, but that's the one that sticks out in my mind. And so, as, so that's, that was my first impression of what is a Top Gun instructor? What does it look like? And, and that your, was your really first real life, my obviously. first real life in, like interaction with a person that had been to the real Top Gun and had instructed at the real Top Gun and is now 
like a, a, a model representation of what that school is all about. And so that made a, a really big impression on me. And that happened very early when I got to my very first squadron. So now as I'm going through my qualifications in my first squadron, you start out as a, as a wingman, just learning how to fly, stay in formation, learning how to employ your weapons when you're, when you're supposed to, learning how to put your bombs on target you know, when you're supposed to, but you're not making a lot of decisions. Your, your flight lead is doing a lot of that for you. Your flight lead is also doing the majority of the mission planning, the briefing, the leading and the debriefing. So as a wingman, you are- You're just soaking it up. You're in. soaking it up. So re real quick though, when we talk about you're being the wingman, mm -hmm. everything is deployed in pairs, right? At a minimum in the Navy, that's our smallest, what we like to think is our smallest fighting formation would be a two ship of fighters, a section, mutually supporting each other. Okay, so you've got, and in, in, in its most basic uh, form, wingman and lead, mm -hmm. So you start out as a wingman, and about how long do you spend doing doing that? How year, two years? You you should spend about probably eight to ten months okay. in a perfect world as a as a wingman. There are some external factors that can draw that out or can make that even shorter, but that's about the the right time. I would say probably no longer than that, where you should be at the end of that eight to ten months. You understand your squadron's standard operating procedures. You can accurately employ your weapons. You know what you're supposed to be doing. And by that 10th month, you should already be anticipating what your flight lead is going to say. So that's a good indicator. If you're a seasoned wingman, your flight lead doesn't have to say much to you. You're already in position. You're already anticipating where we're going next. You know what's coming up. Mm -hmm. That's a good indicator of like, okay, you're now ready to start leading if you're getting that anticipation and, hey, I know where we're going. You don't have to tell me. I listen in the brief. I've done this before as a wingman. So that's a, a pretty good barometer. Like, yeah, man, that's about the right time. Get ready to move up into the lead position. Okay. So how did you get selected for, for Top Gun? So I, guess I got selected in that you have to apply to attend. Okay. And at that time, there were four classes per year. And so you would, I, I knew when my time at VFA 22 was going to be up. So I identified the Top Gun classes that I could apply for. And based on my timing, I really had one shot, mm -hmm. one class that was going to work. And so the process, they put out a message that, hey, this is when class 0209, that was January, that would have been the class that started January of 2009. And there's the prerequisites in there where you have to have a minimum number of tactical jet flight hours. You have to be a division lead, which now you have to be able to lead not only two airplanes, but lead four airplanes around in a tactical formation and doing different mission sets. And you have to get recommendations from your commanding officer, executive officer, other Top Gun instructors, other Top Gun graduates in, in your squadron or your air wing or guys mm -hmm. on your flight line. So you have to go out and do and get some endorsements from guys in, at that time, the F-18 community to support you. Like, hey, I, you know, we know Jeff, solid aviator, um, good background would be a good fit. And so that's, you put together a package, submit it to Top Gun, and then they go through and select who their, uh, who their candidates are going to be to attend the, the class. And so your kind of uh, um, motivation, if you will, was Mongo. Right, Mongo. He was my primary motivation. And then as he left, as military units do, um, you know, we had a new ex, new CO, a commanding officer, a new executive officer, but there are still other guys on the flight line that were 
still gave that big impression on me that I wanted to be like, but I would say, uh, hands down early on, like, yeah, that's what, that's where my initial motivation came from. How many people apply? Ooh. Um, sometimes as many as about 20 for a class. That's it. Yeah. It's not a big class. I would have um, thought that they're, they're well, but I mean, there's 20 in the class. So at the time there'll be probably 10 to 12 pilots in a class. Okay. That's very small, very small. And there are also maybe three to four weapon systems officers. So backseaters, whizzos, mm-hmm. what we, what we call them. Um, but that's kind of the general makeup of the class. It's, it is pretty small and the applicant pool, like, and I would say it's, it's small ish, like the, we weren't getting like hundreds of applicants. Tactical aviation in the Navy is, is pretty small. And so the, the number of guys who are even eligible is a smaller talent pool. And the guys that are interested to go interested in going to Top Gun, it narrows that down a little bit. So yeah, it's not pre- uncommon. Prerequisites probably filter out. Some so, people don't even apply that's because right. of that. Okay. That's right. And so about, you know, 15 to 20 guys would apply. And, but it, of those guys that are applying, when you look at them all on paper, like everybody is really highly qualified. Sure. Everybody's highly motivated. So trying to call out like the talent from a really talented pool already uh, is challenging, but it's, it, it is the right thing to do. And that process is, it, it gets pretty personal. It gets pretty in depth of trying to identify who can do this type of flying, who will be successful at it, who could turn around and be a really good teacher um, to try to make sure you get the right guys. Cause it's uh, it, it is a powerful it is a powerful class, and, and it is a really powerful teaching tool later on in the Navy. So um, there's a lot of time spent on it trying to get that right. So, um, And I was fortunate to get selected in, uh, in my class and um, started in January 2009 was when I sat down for the intro lecture at uh, the Navy Fighter Weapons School, which is the official name, but we all call it Top Gun. So, um, so that's kind of how it worked for me. So January 2009 until when? How long is the school? The class is a 12 to 13 week syllabus. So we ended up finishing up late March and that, and that is, so that is the Top Gun class. You graduate from Top Gun and now you're a strike fighter, tactics instructor. You got a shiny new Top Gun patch. And from there, this is an interesting wrinkle that I don't think a lot of guys are, are aware of, but when you apply to Top Gun, you also put your preference in on where you want to go after you graduate. Okay. So there are a couple of different options. You can, you can apply to turn right back around and stay on the Top Gun staff. You can go to the East Coast or West Coast weapon schools. And those aren't Top Gun, but those are requisite weapon schools in California and in Virginia that preach the Top Gun mission. And they help teach the Top Gun mission at those bases in, Naval, uh, in Oceana in Virginia and Lemoore mm-hmm. in California. So those are the three options. Every other, every other class, you could also go back and be a, a top or a strike fighter tactics instructor at the FRS, which is the fleet replacement squadron where guys are learning how to fly the super Hornet for the first time. Mm-hmm. There also guys can go to, um, BX nine, which is a test squadron. So there's a, there's a couple different places you can go. And for me, when I applied to top gun, I said, I wanted to go to top gun afterwards as well. And, and that's how I ended up making it going through the class, graduating, and then turning right back around and being, you know, one of the, a brand new instructor on the staff with, you know, deer in the headlights. And I, what did I get myself into? 
So that's that's kind of how the the selection process works and how you end up back on the Top Gun staff. So you get out of uh, of of Top Gun, and do you go back to the fleet? I do. Point? I turn around and go back to the fleet and join Strike Fighter Squadron Forty One, and that is where I head to. And the I, I get to them, and we start right into a workups to go on a on another combat cruise. So. I, I left Fallon, Nevada in 2000, April 2012 and got right back to the fleet and, you know, training and get ready to go back uh, back to sea. Did you, were you ever just flying along? I mean, I, I understand that, you know, that you've got missions and, and you've got a, a, a very focused set of tasks that you have to complete each time. Were you ever just flying along though and going, God, this is kind of boring. I mean, I'm just, I'm just flying along up here in the clouds and, you know, Hey, there's my buddies way off over there, you know, that, you know, there's my wingman, whatever the case. It just seems like at some point there's a little bit of boredom that creeps in. Todd, that's a that's a great put, man. That's well said. It, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, some uh, probably some aviators like the magic of flight, like taking off and landing, and you know, being able to have a really good view from a cockpit is is sometimes that's guys have that passion from an early age, and that's what fills their mm-hmm. cup. And since it wasn't mine. Yes, absolutely. To answer your question, there are there are a lots, lots and lots of hours in this logbook that are mind-numbingly boring, mind-numbingly boring, and and that's not to disparage like, oh man, you're in a fighter jet and you've got all this firepower at your fingertips, but it's it's like other things; it becomes a job at some points. And the parts that I thought uh, were, were, were what actually what really excited me was the tactical employment of the airplanes. Mm-hmm. And so in a training environment, that would be when you start fighting, there's a call you make on the radio called fights on. And when that training evolution is over, you call the knock it off. And so from fights on to knock it off is what I really, that's what filled my cup. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at us, at some point when getting to the fights on, you know, and then getting home after the knock it off, after the fight, like, it, be, it became so rote and so predictive and, and normal that there was some boredom in there. Well, and, and honestly, I think that was one of the things that, that almost drew me away from flight school because I, I had in the back of my mind um, my officer selection officer had been, he was going through flight school, and he told me that very thing. He's flying along, and he's looking out the window and he's like, it was the most gorgeous, serene feeling, but I was just uninspired. I was bored. And so he landed, went into his, uh, his command and said, I want to go to infantry officer course. And, and that was it. And so I had that in the back of my mind the whole way. And I, I just wanted to ask you that because it just seems like the more I thought about it through the years, that's what would happen. That's a really valid question. And where I, where I would now like, turn around and talk out of the other side of my mouth is the way that naval aviators train for the strike fighter mission. And a really big part of our, what make, what we like to think makes us special and makes us different as we deploy on aircraft carriers. Mm-hmm. And I would say the level of like, you know, when I'm flying around, I don't really have that much to do and I don't have much to pay attention to. I would say, I will put that in the land-based category. When you're operating from sea off of an aircraft carrier, it is, an, it is an entirely different type of flying. It's an entirely different type of focus. And I'd say I, I did not, there were, very, there were, I was rarely ever bored 
on while flying off of aircraft carriers. It it requires a, just so much attention that there's not a whole lot of time to like just sit back. Like, oh man, like there are times, but sometimes you need that. Sometimes you've been you know so keyed up mm-hmm. for a mission that you need about 15 minutes you know to be straight and level. You know, autopilot on. Almost decompress. Decompress, like catch your breath, maybe get a sip of water, look outside for a second and appreciate what you're doing. Um, so I would say that level of boredom d- does not really exist flying off of the carrier. It's it's fun, scary, dynamic, day, night, bad. I mean, there's a lot. That's a whole nother topic. But uh, but I won't deny that there is some boredom set in there um, while flying. I would imagine the pucker factor involved in landing on an aircraft carrier at night in choppy seas has got to be beyond 10 from zero to 10. I'd like to, I, I want to get I, this accurate. I did that. <laughs> I landed in the back of a helicopter where if you just drop straight down, you were sure to hit something. Mm-hmm. But in your case, that's a whole different world. And I want to, I want to characterize this accurately because this is, this is probably what most people want to talk about. Like how scary is that? And so I'll try to be precise and, and not take up the whole day. But when you're when you're brand new, when you finally get to your first squadron and you're expected to take off and land on the aircraft carrier in all conditions, you're very young, you know, and sometimes the landings are easy and sometimes the landings are difficult. And I'd say that'd be during the day as, as you're learning at night when you're early in your career, they're all kind of scary. But, you know, sometimes you handle it really well. And that was a, you know. That was a great landing, nice mm-hmm. where you're supposed to be, right on glide slope, no real big deviations. Even as a young guy, you can do some, you can have some good landings. So not every, not every landing at night is terrifying. I say every landing at night from the start of your career to the last one requires 100% of your focus. When it's, out, when you're, when it's nighttime and the weather is great, you're focusing so hard and you've done it so many times that you can get to a normal nominal landing spot, I'd say probably, you know, nine times out of 10. That one time that you get a little bit off of glide slope or left or right of center line um, to throw a little bit more color at what your landing looks like, those can get your attention. However, when the conditions do get really bad, and for me, the conditions that I hated the most was poor visibility. And it didn't matter if it were day or night. When, the, when you could not see the ship, that's where I, that's where I was, un, was really uncomfortable. And that's where you saw a lot of the other pilots in the air wing struggling to get into a, a, a really safe landing, landing window. Um, so not everyone, not every single landing was a four-alarm forest fire. And I'd say, you know, you train to it so much. Like, there are so many flights in this logbook that are just dedicated to practice landings. And so what you get, the muscle memory and the sight picture and the procedures and checklist, you get all that stuff down to where you're not thinking about that. You're just concentrating on, all right, I got to be on glide slope. I got to be on center line. And I got to make sure that I have my hook down and I'm going to land. So on those days where the weather's pretty good, day or night, you should be able to land the aircraft without, you know, really huge deviations. You'll get some ones thrown in there that are kind of ugly, especially as a young aviator. But no matter, wh- no matter what happens, as you get more experience, when it gets really poor visibility, bad weather, nighttime, pitching deck, then yeah, it can get a little, uh, it can get pretty nasty 
nasty pretty quick. And every most aviators have a a story about, and we call it a night in the barrel, where you're just you just can't get aboard for some reason or another. You just can't make it happen, and you you just go around and around and around until you can finally land. Sometimes that involves going to a tanker to get more gas to keep trying to land. So uh, it's just a, it's a part of the seasoning as an aviator. But um, I don't want to make it sound like it's routine. We train to make it admin. We train mm-hmm. to make it routine. As routine as it can be, there it does get pretty dicey at times. And uh, whenever those conditions arose, I can I would like to say to myself, whenever I would touch down and know that I caught a wire and I was going to stop, I would say out loud, "Ah, oh, feels good to be home." There's a five. Oh, okay. That's over for me. I can just safely park the airplane. And I felt so bad for the 10, 12 other airplanes that had to, that were behind me now. But there was a, a huge sense of relief when, when it was really tough. You finally landed. It's a, it's a noticeable relief factor. Yeah, that was your mental trigger that, okay, oh, yeah. now I can relax a little <laughs> bit. A little bit. You still had to be on the flight deck, still had to be mm-hmm. nighttime and follow your instructions. But uh, the, hard, the hard part was done. So you referenced the logbook. And sitting in front of us is... What about fifteen years worth of of actual flights? Yeah, of actual flights. That that's probably about right. And so, if I were to ask you to go in there and find one flight, one day that you still carry with you to this day, that you wouldn't even have to reference it in there, you could tell me the story behind that. Is there a day like that? There is. It would be uh, early September two thousand and eight. And I can, I, I, I've marked it because uh, just to bring back some memories of it, I, in all these pages, and there's a little spot in here where you can put the remarks. And I put, we were doing, we were flying over Afghanistan at this time in VFA 22. So I was a junior officer, my first tour. And I put the mission number in here, which is Papa Alpha 7125. And it's myself and my backseater. His first name was Lenny. He didn't have a call sign at that point. Um, and, no, actually, that was his call sign was Lenny. And this was uh, in serial number 166796, combat mission, 6.3 hours. And so I, this, this, this flight specifically is probably one of the more memorable ones in here. Why? This is, uh, we, were, we were doing combat operations and supportive operation Enduring Freedom. And... You know, I'd had a couple of combat tours, and it's it's a really different perspective, I believe. I, I never was on the ground for any of these operations. Mm-hmm. So I was always in an aircraft. But my first experience in an aircraft was kind of, as you mentioned, it wasn't boring, but it wasn't, we weren't dropping a lot of ordnance. We weren't doing a lot of support of ground forces. Um, and, or we were, but not, not kinetically. We were doing a lot of overwatch. We were doing a lot of you know, security operations, make sure nobody was digging on the side of the road, looking for IEDs. And, and that was, you know, there, that wasn't super demanding. You could eat a turkey sandwich and run your sensor at the same time. And it was, uh, it was pretty controlled. And this time through Afghanistan, it, was, it wasn't the Wild West, but it was a lot more kinetic. It was a lot more aggressive. And the, the really difficult part that or not, I, I would characterize it as difficult, but why that, w- it, w- it could be difficult because you could be doing that in Afghanistan, you know, just looking at the ground, looking for suspicious vehicles, susp- suspicious personnel. And you could be, you could be, go- you could go from that level of stress, which is very calm, to 
very stressful in a matter of one one radio call. So that and on that day, that's how it happened. We were daytime, gorgeous day in Afghanistan, great flying weather, good visibility. And we were doing some overwatch, not really doing a whole lot, just checking out some points of interest for our ground controller. Yeah, explain to people what overwatch is. So overwatch, the way that that would work is um, some type of element of coalition forces, Marines, Army, on the, will be on the ground, and they might be trying to move from one position to another. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to do overwatch, my job would have been to make sure I'm, I, can, I know where the friendly forces are. And now as they move to their next point, I'm going to look along their route and make sure, and what we would call it sanitize, we would Mm -hmm. search that area to make sure, hey, there's nobody, no suspicious characters on the west side of the road, or hey, there's two moving vehicles that have now parked at this next intersection. We would just kind of give them updates and situational awareness as they were moving to give them a security blanket to, hey, if something goes bad or you guys move to contact, you have us overhead that we can help intervene and help you guys maintain security. You you're know. watching over them to ensure that they're safe. That's right. And in the most basic form, that's what you're doing. And that's, that's what we were doing. And then we get a radio call that the basics of it say that, hey, there are troops in contact. And that's called a tick. Mm-hmm. Hey, we have a tick in this kill box. So we need you to move to that kill box. And I'll exp- a kill box is... A, squ- a square over a geographic point over the, over the land that is gives a, a number and a letter identifier. So they're, they basically break up the whole globe really as kill boxes. Mm-hmm. And that's how you're assigned where you're going to go. So they told us to go to this kill box, contact this controller on this frequency. So now we were going, you know, we were at a very low stress environment. And I know just I, the fact that that controller said, we have a tick, troops in contact. I was like, Okay. Now, they're not all ticks or troops in contact situations are created equally. You know, I'd, I'd been on other ticks before mm-hmm. that were very low stress. This one was not low stress. So as soon as we tuned the radio up to that next controller, the first thing we could hear was the gunfire, but small arms, automatic gunfire in the background. And my, I have, everybody has their own little personal reminders that like their body reacts certain ways. And I know mine that when I get stressed, my physiology, when I can feel my heartbeat in my ears, that's how I know that like I'm stressed out. And so I could feel the heartbeat in my ears as I'm, as we turn, turn the radios on and, and it's just, it's just me and my wizard. I have a backseater with me, but there's not another airplane that's, with that's us. That's Lenny. That's Lenny's with us. With me, and we're in one airplane, and we had we had gotten we flew into Afghanistan with another airplane, but we had been split up. And hey, we want your your wingman to go over here. You guys go over here, do this Overwatch. That's that's not usual, is it? It's not usual, and that's not the way we train. However, yeah. to get more coverage over the country, like you know, you can especially if it's low threat, you can go to different geographic areas and kind of cover two birds or use two aircraft to get a lot more coverage. So that was sure. not uncommon. Um, so, but when we show up to this tick, it's just our airplane, nobody else around. And so finally we hear the controller and the controller is a, is, is a, what we call a joint terminal air controller, a JTAC. And so that JTAC is embedded with those guys that are fighting and he's fighting himself. He's got a gun, but he also has, happens to be the one with the radio. And we hear him start talking and he has a Irish accent. So these are Irish coalition forces on the ground that 
I'd never met these guys before, hadn't briefed with them. We certainly didn't walk on this mission having any idea we would talk to them. And he says on the radio, he's like, 99, this position is taking fire from all directions. So to break down that calm call a little bit, the term 99 means, hey, anybody listening, everybody out there, this is for anybody listening. This position is taking fire from all directions. So he didn't, he didn't have the time on the radio or the breath to say it anymore. That could, that's as general as you can say. Like He's basically saying, anybody on this radio, I'm, we're getting shot at from mm-hmm. all directions. And so once we heard that, like we, we knew that this was going to be you know, a challenging fight for, for them. They were already in it. And a challenging situation for us to, to now, like, how do we start coordinating with this guy to help him? He can't even say his name or his call sign on the radio. Let alone mark his position. Let so alone mark it. Yeah, exactly. Mark his position, try to talk us on to where the bad guys are. So we have some considerable links to go through to try to coordinate with this guy to get him some help, which you want to do. Like, you feel the stress, but you, you want to start making it happen really, really quickly. Yeah, there's got to be a little bit of a helpless feeling there because, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, you're, you're driving down the road and you see somebody in a position where you know they're in trouble and they need your help, but you can't get to mm-hmm. them. I mean, you, you were a little bit more in control there, but not much. Yeah, that's, a, it's, that's 100% accurate. And, and the fact that you're constrained, you can only talk through a radio. I can't see him, so he can't give me hand signals. There's, there's very limited things he can do to, to start building our situational awareness to help him. So that goes on for, for a little while. And finally, we're, we're checking in with him. And, I, and I, I think he's hearing us, but I don't know. So our aircraft call sign at the time, what our squadron used while we were in Afghanistan was heartless, which I loved. I thought that was a great aircraft call sign. So I'm keying the radio and, and, and saying... Hey, Heartless 1-4, checking in on station. You got 20 minutes of playtime. Or just, hey, Heartless 1-4 on station. We're just trying to let him know, hey, we're, we're here. here. Yeah. We're here. And so finally. Give him a little bit of psychological help. Exactly. Just to know that, hey, I heard your radio call. We know you're in a bad way. We're here. Let's start coordinating. And from there, and you mentioned it already, he was, he was trying to talk us on to where they were where they were taking effective fire from. So mm-hmm. they thought they were getting shot at from all directions and they they might have been but the worst of it was coming from one specific direction. Like they were taking effective fire. So my recollection of it is the good guys were in the west, bad guys were in the east at probably you know 1000 meters, maybe not even that, maybe 700 meters away. Mm-hmm. And so and luckily and this was one of the Smartest tactical decisions that I've ever seen anybody make, and it was the JTAC on the ground. He has, he has the ability to mark the enemy position with a flare. And if anybody driving down the road has seen a car in distress with mm-hmm. the road flare, mm-hmm. that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Except he can shoot it from a gun and put it in the vicinity of where they're taking effective fire from. So he marks the position of that effective fire with a flare. And this is daytime. And the, the fighting is happening on terrain that is mostly uh, green vegetation, some, some sand, like lighter vegetation. So we have good visibility of this small battle space. And so when we see his flare, it's like a picture is worth a million words. Like I, I'm, you know, I see it, you know, I'm, uh, I'm visual to flare. That, now, now you've got a very clear target. A very clear target. So we don't have to talk about 
distances or anything. Say, hey, I, I'm visual to mark um, the target. I, yeah, yeah, he's marked the target. And I see it. And so once we get that confirmation, he is going to have us roll in and strafe the the enemy position. And and why I think and that, when you say strafe the enemy position, you're talking about your own, not small arms because those are pretty high caliber, mm-hmm. but your machine gun fires essentially. Right. So the Super Hornet has an internal gun. Uh, it carried a 20 millimeter round, and so we are going to employ that gun from the air to the ground in the vicinity of that flare to try to, you know, neutralize that enemy position. So that, that's what he want. That's what the first step he wants to do to try to calm the situation down and get them into a position to break contact. Okay. So we see the flare, we get ourselves set up on the, on parameters, we get ourselves up to roll in. And so we roll in and we strafe the flare. And from what I can see from my perspective, like I, I am, we're still fairly far away from the threat and over a mile away. So I can see a tree line. I can see the changes in vegetation, but I, I can't see enemy faces. I can't see legs and people. And so we're, we're kind of using our best guess as to where that fire is coming from to neutralize the, the attack. So we come off and we do our, our strafe attacks and, you know, he gives us the indicator, Hey, good hits, good hits. And what that means to me is that doesn't that doesn't equate to you know enemy killed or anything. That just hey that was where he wanted the hits, and maybe some of the fire had had calmed down a little bit. And so we we do our strafe runs enough to I think it calms down just a little bit. And besides bullets in our gun, we also had other weapons. We had laser guided bombs and we had uh, joint direct attack munitions, JDAM, which is a a bomb that will guide to a GPS coordinate. Okay. So, Think of it as a, as a precision guided weapon. So that's what we're going to employ next. So he talks us on to a different target. We get into position to release our uh, precision guided bomb and, and we do. And the unfortunate thing is for, for our airplane, like once we're out of ordnance, that's about it. Yeah. And so we go through our ordnance and, and I, I, I can't remember how long we were there for it. It seemed like, no time at all. You know, it, just, it happened so quickly. It was moving from one attack to the next attack to the next attack. And so we get to the point where we are now at a fuel state where we need to go refuel and go back to the aircraft carrier. All I can do, or all Lenny and I can do at this point is, you know, be a, a high-speed cheerleader. We, we're out of ordinance and we're getting low on gas. So it's time for us to check off, check off station, go refuel and head back to the carrier. And... We happen to be the first aircraft there, and as we're getting ready, you know, to check off station and, and head back, other aircraft from our aircraft carrier start to show up and check in. So we happen to be the leading edge, but the the hordes are coming behind us to help these guys out, and that was that was definitely a, a, a relief of a feeling. And so we we pass off our information and we check out, go get gas, and head back to the ship and. It's a pretty long transit to get out of Afghanistan through Pakistan and then out to the aircraft carrier. And like the things that were going through our head, you know, at that time between Lenny and I, we didn't, we actually, we didn't talk much about it at all. It was kind of a quiet, somber ride back. Um, we weren't rejoicing. We weren't jumping up and down, high-fiving each other over the radio. Uh, we were just kind of thinking the whole way back, all the way back to the aircraft carrier to, to see like, man, what, what just happened? 
and we get back to the aircraft carrier, we land, and we come back through our carrier information center. That's where we would go to debrief, give them our mission details. And we went, both of us sprinted right back to that spot to get an update to say, hey, have you guys heard what's going on? Any updates? Now you're invested. Yeah, I was super invested. Big time, like personally invested. And um, it turns out at the end of that day, more carrier air wing forces, Navy assets showed up and were able to neutralize the enemy so those Irish JTACs and those Irish fighting forces could break contact, move safely. They didn't lose anybody, um, you know, and that was a really warm feeling, but it, it took a long time to find that out. And so that was a, that was a really, yeah, an interesting day and not at all what I thought it would feel like to actually employ weapons in combat that were helping guys you were fighting for. So that was, uh, that was a really, really impactful day. That you know, Was that the first time you ever really employed your weapon systems in support of guys on the ground? It wasn't. I had employed before. Then, but what, then what made that day so unique versus anything you'd experienced to that point? The previous employments that I had had were static. Where, hey, um, you know, I, we were talking to a ground controller or a JTAC, and he wants to go hit a target. But that target was not shooting back at him. And I'd say, hey, th- we know this is a weapons cache of a, this is just an example. We know this is a weapons cache building where the threat's keeping small arms and you know, different types of weapons. We want you to take that out. So that, that has a different type of stress altogether. You want to make sure you get the mission right, make sure the right things blow up and the fusing, all this stuff is right. But that is highly different than the situation where the guys you're supporting, where their life is on the line at that moment, you know, temporally right now, like you have got to do something now to help these guys. So that was a, that was a really different type of. So that was your first time doing what we referred to as close air support. I mean, because on the ground, you know, as somebody who who went through that part of the training, mm-hmm. the, you know, calling in the close air support because we've got contact and guys are going to start to go down if we don't have the ability to overtake them or break contact. That's the first time you experience that. I would say we so we called all of that close air support, but okay. and but by function and definition of what actual close air support is, those other missions that were static and you're just hitting targets that are being coordinated by somebody else, like. That that is a brand, that is a type of low threat cast, but this close air support was, you know, actual actual close air support, higher threat, and and a way different dynamic employment wise. Right. And the mission objectives were completely different. Okay. Where I gotta hit this small building and now I just need to neutralize an enemy position. Right. So that the good guys can move to a different spot and gain an advantage. So um, but I would I would agree with you like for actual cast with guys that are in close combat, in close coordination, uh, that probably really was the first time it met the you know true definition of what cast is, is thought to be. Well, number one, I want to say thank you very much uh, for everything you did uh, in defense of this country and, and everything we hold dear. Uh, thanks for agreeing to come on. Uh, as you are aware with, you know, carry the load, one of the big things that that is extremely important to us is that we keep in mind those who made the ultimate sacrifice. Um, it's important that we keep their memory alive. Is there anybody in particular that, that you carry with you to this day that you may have had the pleasure of serving with? I do. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a no brainer. I, I carry Lieutenant junior grade, Stuart Hunter, 
with me. Um, and I, and I, I carry him pretty significantly. This is, uh, one of our officers in, in my last squadron that we lost. And it's, uh, it, there's some, it's, it's fresh. It's, there's a lot of scar tissue there and, and his memory and kind of living up to the expectation of preserving his memory. I take pretty seriously, even, you know, now I'm, I'm out of the squadron, but, uh, but, but his memory is probably the one that sticks out in my mind right now as, as the most significant. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah. My pleasure. This has been, uh, this has gone a, a lot longer than it, than it normally does. And, you know, and we can kind of fail out at, the, at this point, but man, I, I, I um, Thank you. Thank you for sharing everything. And and it it sounds like there were a couple of things you probably needed to talk about anyway. (laughs)